this picture of Nebuchadnezzar, who's gone out and living the life of a cow. And actually, if you go on Wikipedia and read some other commentators, they say uh, Nebuchadnezzar suffered from lyc lycanthropy, which is another, like the scientific word for thinking you're a werewolf. You know, he became an animal, he transformed, he was an animorph, and uh, the guy ended up just living outside. It. And uh, Guys, I actually think this is such a fantastical story, but this story is the story of our current now. And whether it is the leaders of nations or it's our own families, we see the story of Nebuchadnezzar played out over and over. So as we've been talking about Babylon, USA, not because the USA on this July 4th, not because USA is the great Satan, all right, but because we can only really speak criticism to ourselves before we criticize others. And what I mean by that is, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of others. So I could name human rights violations for virtually every nation in this world, but I pay taxes to only one nation. So I, traditionally with my limited scope, I want to talk about the sins that I'm a part of, and I want to talk about the Jesus who redeems me and gives me life and gives me hope. I'd rather be an expert of where God is inviting me to change versus being an expert where other people need to change. And let me, I, just so you know, I've tried both options, okay? I've really developed the ability to be very critical of other people. And frankly, I became a ninja at that. You know, I'm turning 50 here, but I gotta tell you, I spent a number of years being excellent critic, not only that, I used to take pride in having a very sharp wit, and the idea is how many either poetic words, complex words, or succinct words, depending on what mood you're in, can you dismantle a person who you think is a bad person? And what I found is in developing those skills, I became a bad person. And we see in Jesus Christ the antidote to Babylon. We see... In pre, like pre-images of Jesus in Babylon, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, we have this strange fourth man, the fourth man factor. We have this fourth man who's with them. The commentators, many commentators, since the resurrection of Jesus, have retroactively viewed as the resurrected as Christ before he was born into this world, an apparition of Christ being with people who are vulnerable. All right, so it was kind of a retcon, theologically. And I think it's, it's right. Now, if it wasn't a pre-incarnate Jesus, it was a manifestation of the God who's present to our sufferings. So the application is the same. Whether or not it was Jesus, it manifests the Jesusness of God, right? The, the Jesusness of Jesus, if you want to know where Jesus is in, Jesus is with those who suffer. If you want to know... Where, if there's multiple sides of the situation, Jesus is not a box checker. He does not identify with any political party, but he identifies with people. Anytime that someone claims that Jesus identifies with the platform of their political party, uh, they're, they're, they're hurting baby Jesus. They're making baby Jesus cry. But, but seriousness, they're really insulting Jesus Christ. But Jesus is in the corner of those who suffer. So friends... As I look out here, I, uh, you know, we've got a smaller group today. People are doing their post-COVID, before the next COVID hits, let's go out and travel. But 
those of you who are here and those I know are part of our churches, for some reason, I'll share with my buddy Dana we were talking, is we have uh, probably a lot more people who've been bullied at our church than people who've been bullies. And there's no shortage of bullies who say they identify with Christianity. In fact, because history, because the way we tell history is biased about talking about leaders, you know, we know who was, we learn history by who was president and what wars were fought, right? That's not history. How many of you have met the president of the United States, past president? Uh, really met him? Who, who did you meet, Carol? Jimmy Carter, so you met Jimmy Carter. All right, hey, awesome. Jimmy Carter, who's done wonders to stand in the corner of the vulnerable through his work for Habitat for Humanity and teaching Sunday school. Got my heart. Anyway, but the fact of the matter is, you guys are making history, yet history isn't talking about you. And that's the same with the ancient world. History talks about emperors, leaders, kings, queens, presidents, and prime ministers, right? So when we talk about Christian history, we talk about people who identified as leaders and kings and empires who said they were Christians. So then when you study that so-called Christian history, it gets depressing because we have crusades, we have ethnic cleansing, we have one denomination killing members of another denomination because we tell history by the powerful. Now one thing that's helped me not to become a dyed-in-the-wall atheist is to read the Bible. And understand the Bible, the history of the Bible is where the least of these is the most important. The Christian history is about how those that are insignificant and bullied change the world through love. So it would follow to tell Christian history is like the, the most compelling parts of the Bible is when we hear about people at their lowest point. The most compelling part about Genesis is the beginning of the story of Abraham when his wife and him can't have kids. She was barren. You know, presumably probably had a lot of miscarriages. Can you imagine the heartache that was part of Abraham and Sarah's life? It centers on an elderly couple that doesn't have kids, which in the ancient world was a death sentence. We go to the end of Genesis. We talk about a slave who was betrayed by his family, changing the world. Joseph. We go and focus on the story of Israel, who's continually being beat up by other nations. Israel, who even when they build a palace, and you hear about all the instructions of building the temple palace, if you look at the ancient world, it wasn't all that compared to everything else that was built. Nothing that God had Israel built even touched what the Hittites built. Nothing that God had Israel built even touched the empire of Egypt. They were, relatively, they're very humble structures. So we see the way God tells the story is God becomes incarnate in human flesh by being born into the ancient world version of Kashokton. You know, Nazareth, not an Ivy League town, working a blue-collar job to the point when, the, 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 in Israel that was a beat-up nation among nations, Israel that would have been regarded as a pathetic kingdom among the kingdoms of the world, had their savior of their pathetic kingdom came from the most so-called pathetic part of Israel to the point where they said even the beleaguered people of Israel would look down on Jesus and say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which that was just an assumptive close. So guys, I've been discouraged in my Christian life and Christian faith 
by people in power who identify as Christians that totally trigger me as far as the bullies that I've experienced in my life. Alright? So, what helps me is not only to know Christians all over the world who don't identify with the power and faith coming together, but also to read the Bible. And that, I love Daniel. Daniel became the bestseller or the most read book of the Jewish people under the reign of Rome. Because Daniel was like, you could quote all the imagery in Daniel talking about the kings of the world being destroyed and not get lynched for treason or crucified for treason. So Daniel became a code book to talk about how Rome's going to get theirs. God's going to come. And Jesus is coming back and boys, you know, whatever. So all that to say is we've heard about Nebuchadnezzar going forward. We've heard about the narcissism of Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard, in fact, for a long time, the only way to know anything about Nebuchadnezzar was from the Bible. To the point is some skeptics believed he was a made-up character, and then, bummer, archaeology finds out, yes, there was a Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, that, this is a common trope in Bible research is, this person didn't exist. It was just made to bolster this religious narrative. And then, oh, no, they found his tomb. Or, oh, no, they found a plate talking about Caiaphas. He wasn't just made up. And that's just kind of the history of biblical archaeology. Oh, no, that person actually existed. Well, Nebuchadnezzar actually existed beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, one thing that's interesting is Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind was not preserved for posterity by his children. Funny that. Nebuchadnezzar, we have a story of him losing his mind, and his family did not make sure that their father's insanity was preserved for all to come. And they didn't have YouTube. They didn't have viral videos. The people who had the money to hire scribes and to write down history were in the corner of the powerful. So the poor, beleaguered people, the only record we have of failures of any king let alone failures of their own leaders, is the Hebrew Scriptures. Hebrew Scriptures devote so much space to leader losers. All right? And that leaders, that's one thing I love about it. It's, ob- it's not propaganda when you talk about epic fail after epic fail after epic fail. But the, the Jewish people believe God is good, and we're getting there, or we're far from there. So, M. Scott Peck. Pop psychology, 1970s, 80s. I don't know if he's in vogue now. What I loved about M. Scott Peck is he was able to describe mental illness in very succinct terms along a spectrum that would help us, that since studies DSM-3, DSM-4, DSM-5, his basic categories still work for the layperson to understand mental illness. And in The Road, Road Less Traveled, he talks about basically everyone falling into one or two categories on the spectrum. And either you have a character disorder or you're neurotic. And the neuro- neurotics, which I think many of you that I know are neurotics, are like, I'm not good enough. If people really knew me, they would hate me. Uh, this person thinks I can do this thing, but I know about myself and I can't do that thing. There's self-loathing. There's uh, uh, risk aversion. And there's the idea that I can't lead crap. Now, character disorders are more about narcissists or sociopaths or bullies. And the interesting thing is people on both ends of the spectrum, the arch narcissist and the arch neurotic, often go into ministry. They go into spiritual service. 
Because in the ancient world, to be a shaman or to be a priest of any religion gave you power. In fact, in some empires, the spiritual leader was more powerful than the king. And actually, uh, the, the cult of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the followers of the way, totally veered from that narrative. And the thing is, they said, we don't have time to get political power. We're too busy going to the battlefields and dressing the wounds of both sides. Uh, you know, when, when people were seeking power, the early church in Ephesus said, well, we don't have time to seek power. People are taking their disfigured or children with birth defects or who are the wrong gender in their mind, and they're throwing them and abandoning them out in the rubbish heap. We're, as a church, we're not going to seek power. We're going to stalk the rubbish heap and adopt those kids. And that was their church growth paradigm, is adopting the disabled children who were ejected by the world. That's the story of the early church for a couple hundred years. And then... Someone said, well, wow, this, these people have spread like wildfire over the world because they're clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, loving their enemies, and invented this thing called hospitals. In fact, the, the one quintessential element of the early church was health care for everyone that needed it. And they did it themselves. They, they knew, I mean, this is an empire. There's no way they were going to vote for health care for everyone. They said, well, let's all get schooled. Let's teach each other everything we know. And let's go to where people are hurting. And the, the, that's why has, the value of hospitality, which was an intrinsic Christian Jesus-following value, because the early church believed when you're caring for someone, when you're showing hospitality, you might just be caring for an angel of God because the face of God is in the hurting. So then they called healthcare facilities hospices or for hospitality and it was outgrowth of the early church. So right now I meet so many passionate Christians like, uh, who are like, let's give health care to the vulnerable. You know, my brother-in-law works for Cure International, Christian ministry. And their idea is let's build pediatric hospitals that deal with complex birth defects and illnesses for children in countries that don't have a health care uh, deal. And the idea is, let's get rich American people and moderately rich and poor American people who are rich by global standards to give money to build pediatric hospitals. And there's something about, it, it, it scratches an itch in our Christian heritage. Yeah. I'm going back to Nebuchadnezzar. This is a long, long, freaking long passage. <laughs> and I'm going to try to read the whole thing. I might be fast, but I'm going to pick out one verse and unpack it before I read the passage. So before I read this verse, Lord Jesus, bless the reading of your word. Help this story to be ingrained on us. Help uh, on, on the planet of our soul terraform it into a lush paradise that grows the fruit of your kingdom. Amen? Yeah. Terraform, little firefly. Uh, yeah, there. Actually, I'm not supposed to reference Joss anymore. Sorry. Um, let me grab this here. So I want to read the verse. Uh, this is chapter 4, but the key verse is 30. It's this. Is not this the great Babylon I have built? Is the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Is not this the great Babylon I have built? Is not this the great power I have built? Great power. When people talk about greatness and powers or making things great, they're aligning with the spirit of Babylon. 
Because we are not called to greatness. Followers of God are called to excellence, not greatness. We're called to excellence, not greatness. What I mean by that is, let me now show you the most excellent way, Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is... Greatness is about power over people. Excellence is about loving people and loving our enemy. So I, you know, I want to make Central Vineyard, I want the Lord Jesus to make Central Vineyard excellent again. You know, uh, Maya, I guess that's how you say Maya, make, make, make America excellent again. Excellent. And I wouldn't say again, though, either. I'd say May. May, like May West or some M-A-E. Make America excellent. Let's make every nation excellent because we embrace the most excellent way. But as I talk about this global narcissism of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I want to talk to the souls, our broken souls under this tent. I'm not going to comment as much as empires. I want to talk about the empire of our heart. All right. And as I look here, I see people that have been bullied. I see people who have been in abusive marriages. I see people that have been mistreated by their parents or disappointments to their parents. I, I look around, I see people that have had a sibling grind them into the dirt. I, I see people that have served in ministry where they encountered a Nebuchadnezzar spirit, a Nebi spirit in ministry as being this neurotic person that just goes into ministry. You know why a neurotic person goes into ministry? Because they find out God is good with me. A neurotic person serves God because they realize the voices in my head tell me I suck. And God says, no, 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 no. You're great. I love you. The voices, the, the neurotics that go into ministry are not talking about total depravity. They're talking about fractured beauty that God is mending. We're all born. Adrian had a conversation just the other night where people were talking, I think all people are born and they suck. And I was really, the, the Bible narrative isn't like black or white. The Bible narrative is we are this beautiful work of art with a fracture in it. Now, throughout our lifetime, we can mend that fracture. We can enlist an art restoration specialist that over the long time beautifies that art. Or we can make the art worse. Like that one art restorationist who like tried to erase, did the finger painting uh, restoration of that in Italy? in Italy. Have you ever seen that like epic art restoration fail? So people are born as fractured beauty. And they become either less human or more human depending on the narrative. They release. And the reason why neurotic people and maybe self-loathing or insecure people go into ministry is because they heard this story that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Spirit tells me so. And they say, I don't want to kill myself as much as I used to. Or I don't feel like as much of a failure as I used to. You still have those voices. And I want other people to be set free like I've been set free. Right? Now, People with character disorders pursue ministry because they're like, wow, there's right and there's wrong. And if I do these things, I'm right. And then I can get all those wrong suckers and tell them how not to be wrong either. And since I'm like five laps ahead, I'm going to be a little righter than they are at all times. And what it is, and they don't even know this, is they're climbing a hierarchy of power. They're climbing a hierarchy of power. And they basically turn this servant leadership Love of hearing God's voice that you are beloved. And I'm going to make you more yourself, not less yourself. I'm not going to sublimate you. I'm not going to overwhelm you. I'm going to illuminate who you are in Christ. And every person is an individual. We don't, leaders don't make people in their image. 
They invite people to be the image God has made them to be on the same path with a variety of image bearers, all showing a different element of Jesus. So we get, we get sociopaths in ministry, but we live in the age of exposure. We live in the age where when a pastor says something really bad in a sermon or becomes a bully, someone has their flip phone up and it goes viral. And we've seen more people removed from the pulpit because of narcissism and sociopathy than probably any given time. That's good. So in a way, pe people say, you know, you're giving Christianity a bad name. Say, no, we're clean. We're, we're getting purified. We have the fire of God is not for torture. The fire of God is the coal that touches the lips and cleanses us. I feel God is holding a coal to the church and calling out narcissism. And the thing is, I've got so many people who, and friends and beloved who rejected the message of Christ because of the Antichrist. They've rejected the message of Christ because of anti-Christ behavior. In uh, the abomination that causes desolation that we talk about later on in Daniel is an archetype that can be the church can often the so-called church can be described as the abomination that causes desolation at times. But we see this in Nebuchadnezzar. Read the verse again. Is it not the great Babylon I have built is the royal residence by my mighty power? First of all. No king of an empire has ever built an empire. Empire is built on the back of slaves. There is no great empire in history that did not have slavery in their story. There is no great empire in history that did not involve slaves. There's never a king that says, wow, I did it. You know, you can be a, a tech mogul. And somewhere along the line is your tech mogul. Little kids in China made electronics as, as labor being labor trafficked so that person could be rich. No one has become an emperor without slavery. Whether it's, and I'm just saying across the board of human history. I'm not singling out anyone. And the way that the empire, the kingdom of God is built by us becoming like this. And I want to read Jesus' antithesis comment to empire and to narcissism in Matthew 20. You know, uh, me and Daniel uh, fight a lot because he says Luke is the best gospel, and I say Matthew. And uh, the answer is yes. And I like Mark, too. It's the ADD gospel. Uh, I love that God made a gospel for people short attention spans because Ritalin wasn't always there. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the world lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, if, if you want to be great among us, you've got to be a servant. And whoever wants to be first, here's Jesus' hyperbole. If you want to be first, be a slave. Which implicit in there is, if you want to be first, don't be a slave owner. If you're going to be first, you want to be on the slave side of the spectrum, not the oppressor side of the spectrum. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life for ransom for many. Now why am I tying this verse in with Daniel? Jesus calls himself the son of man. Guess who invented the term son of man? Daniel. Son of man was code to say, I'm ruler of the universe. And you're not going to kill me because I didn't say I'm king. So people talked about the son of man destroying Caesar in the ancient Roman Empire. And people talk about the son of man. Uh, the, the secular folks or the Roman folks just heard human. You're a human son. Yeah, uh, where'd it go? 
Yeah. Priorities. Thanks. So I need the color in chief. So the Son of Man, it Jesus is directly evoking Daniel. He when he says Son of Man, the Jewish people would automatically think of every chapter of Daniel, and they would probably be thinking of lording it over people. They would have thought Nebuchadnezzar as Jesus said this. All right? My friends, so many people have been bullied here. I want to read the passage, and I want to talk about how to break the chain of multi-generational narcissism in our own lives and how to heal from being bullied. First steps. All right? So if you can bear with me, I'm reading this passage, and those of you who have been scarified, and also some of you may have flirted or be on the spectrum of narcissism, and I want to give you hope. Uh, if you, when you get tired of being like an animal, you know, pooping on itself and chewing like grass in the field like Nebuchadnezzar, you have an opportunity to look up and say, I was wrong. So there's hope even for the narcissist, a rare hope. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar begins to address all the people about what he's crowdsourcing another dream interpretation, but he's going to default to his head dream guy, Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar is the lesson in missing the point. He missed the point of the last dream. Um, but he says, To the nations and peoples of every language who live all over the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Pause. He's saying this because he believes God does everything for him. That this God is in service of him. So it sounds like he's worshiping God. But he just says he did it for me. Not us. So keep that in mind. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed and the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, who the spirit of the holy, but the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So notice this. Nebuchadnezzar admits, I've tried to eradicate his culture and basically name him after my God in order to dishonor him and break down his sense of identity. He doesn't even know what he's confessing to here. It's like I've tried to, uh, anyway. You know, sometimes the thing I found, especially watching a narcissist give speeches, is they confess to so many sins in their speeches, they're not even aware of it. And I said, Belshazzar, Chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in the bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and it touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, beautiful, beautiful leaves. Its fruit abundant, and under there's food for all. And under its wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches from every creature was fed. In the vision I saw a lion in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip it off its leaves, scatter its fruit, 
Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret for me. But you can because the spirit of God is within you. What I think is so funny about this dream is this is one of those dreams. Like, can you interpret this dream for me? It's like, I think God sent this is like T-ball as far as prophetic dreams go. It's like, this dream is pretty obvious what it's saying, especially if you heard the interpretation of the last dream. So the fact you really have to be enamored with self not to see when someone directly confronts who you are and it just goes over his head. So literally, this dream was crystal clear. And I don't think his magicians didn't get the dream. I think they said, uh-oh, this is a little on point. This is a little kind of on the nose for a prophetic dream here. We're not going to say this because you don't want to hear from us. But let's get to Daniel. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, meaning don't forget that they tried to annihilate his culture. He was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, uh, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Uh, well, the tree you saw, which grew big and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing fruit for all, and giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places and branches for the birds. Your majesty, uh, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your uh, dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And your majesty, you saw a holy messenger coming down from heaven, saying, cut down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump behind with the iron, the bronze, and the grass of the field. While its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animal, animals until seven times pass by for him. So, uh, yeah, this is your interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High. Has issued against my Lord the King. Uh, you will be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge the Most High Sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them anyone he wishes the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots mean that you and your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven is the one that rules. Therefore, your majesty, uh, be pleased to accept my advice. Uh, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Let me repeat this. So your majesty, be please accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will come. So Daniel adds this bit. Okay, I'm going to tell you the deal here, but here, I know how prophecy works. It's not saying God is a deterministic God that pulls you around like a puppet. It's saying, hey, here's a warning. Get right or get your butt kicked. 
And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as we said, week after week, lessons in missing the point. Sometimes when you're a narcissist or sociopath or have a character disorder, no matter what people say, you can never hear anything contrary to your high opinion of self. You're immune to it. Many of you have seen that. The dream fulfilled. All this happened to the king Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and the glory of my majesty. So basically, he's singing a song about himself. He's like, I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. I'm just like a god. I, you know, if it was a musical episode of the book of Daniel, he'd be singing, you know, my poop don't stink. And I made this castle. I'm so great. And you are not. Look at my slaves. Look at my, you know, whatever. Anyway, so he said this ridiculous thing. He's had two dreams. He's seen the power of God, and he's still going around humming, you know, the world owes me over then. And then, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you, and you will be driven away from people and live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by. Okay. Basically, he repeats everything that was said before and then goes forth. Immediately, what had been said by Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew matted like feathers of the eagle. And his nails were like the claws of a bird, or Howard Hughes. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High God. I honored and glorified him forever. And then Nebuchadnezzar gets uh, restored, all right? And then we never hear about Nebuchadnezzar again in the book. We hear about his son. So even if it was restored, according to the Bible, nothing new to say about Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And what we know about his son is the apple. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar didn't really change in the long term because he reproduced his narcissism into his son, right? So I want to say this. Um, people who've been abused... By Nebu the Nebuchadnezzar's people abused by narcissists are left with two default options and uh, we're going to talk about the presence of God coming to heal us amidst this reality option one when you've been abused when you've been denigrated when you've been manipulated either overtly covertly to feel less than uh, when you're put down constantly the reality is is transparency about your own insecurities could very well open you up to further abuse. If you've been abused, uh, if there's a temptation when you've been bullied to become someone who outwardly presents is not a real broken person. And that's called self-protection. We develop self-protective. Some people just become really angry and scary because if they relent in their angry scariness, someone might see the wounded person behind the veil. Uh, sometimes, literally being abused can form you to, in one way or another, reflect elements of your abuser. An abuser doesn't admit their problems in reality, but the abused person becomes afraid to admit their problems. And when you're afraid to admit your problems, even by design or accidentally, you can hurt other people. You may not be the bully that your bully was, but by putting up a facade of togetherness becomes a force field that bruises people against itself. When we put on a facade of togetherness because we've been hurt, we actually 
even unbeknownst to ourselves, other people aren't going to feel safe around us. Because who's safe around someone whose poo don't stink? Um, when we confess sins, if we've been abused, we often plead to a lesser offense. You know, we, as Christians, we confess our sins. I want to plead to something small. I'll say I'm screwed up in this little way. Because if I talk about this big way, I feel like I've really messed up. People will hate me because of my abuse past. And sometimes, uh, a lot of times this is subconscious. The abused person becomes self-protective in unbeknownst to themselves, injures others. Option two is you totally own the I'm pathetic narrative. And you believe the story that you're pathetic. And the people that bullied you become the people who programmed your vision of self. And self-loathing is the name of the game. And you're always feeling like this thing that God has called me to, not me. If people really knew me, they would never ask me to pray for them if they knew how screwed up I was. If people really knew me, they wouldn't. If people, well, listen, people did not call you. God calls you. And God knows you. And God is good with you. And God wants to heal the fracture in your beauty and make you more like him. So it's not people that calls us to serve God. It's Jesus. And Jesus knows you and says, I can work with where you're at. But so we, the option of either self-protectiveness or self-harm are two ways people approach trauma. But there's a third way. There's always a third way. You don't have to be self-aggrandizing. You don't have to be self-loathing. You have to be a child of Jesus. And what that story is, is Jesus is not the bully. Jesus is the bully. Jesus is, does not cower before bullies. He lets them hurt them, and he speaks truth to the bullies. Jesus speaks truth to the bullies. Jesus is the one. It's called, he is our advocate, which means every time someone speaks a word against you, Jesus is in the supernatural realm going, uh-uh-uh, I say you're wrong. That's a bunch of crap. This person is fearfully and wonderfully made. They're my precious child. This person who you've named, this person who you've called pathetic, this person who feels like they're not any value because they don't have a big career or job, this person who feels like they're not smart enough because they didn't make it through high school, this person who believes because they've been unemployed for so long they don't add anything to this world, and this person who has this narrative of being worthless, I say they are the most important, and they're my radiant child, and I say that I will change the world in ways they don't even know, and they're going to be a shareholder in his kingdom. And Jesus is always there contradicting the bully narrative in our lives. And what we do is in intimacy with God, in spending time reading the scriptures, hearing the scriptures, doing things that help us understand Jesus more, whether it's watching Bible Project videos or Firing up the chosen on our laptop just to get a picture that Jesus loves me, doesn't hate me. Whatever we do, we live into the narrative. And not only that, we ask God for a supernatural intervention where God gives us dreams, where the Holy Spirit falls on us. And the Holy Spirit disrupts our hatred narrative so much that we begin to adhere to the story that Jesus tells about us. So narcissism is contagious if we're self-protective. Narcissism never stops killing us if we embrace the narrative that we suck. But Jesus doesn't teach total depravity. Jesus teaches fractured beauty that the master carpenter wants to repair. Amen? So today, as we pray, 
I look out here, just in this small sample of people, I see people that abuse, have been abused by clergy, whether high church, low church, or no church. I see people that have had, whether it's been a priest, or a pastor, or a Bible study leader, or a boss, or a sibling, or a parent, has spoken the cursed narrative over your life. And listen, that person, that person who aggrandizes himself and speaks curses, is a crazy animal. You need to see the kid's picture of Nebuchadnezzar, where, uh, the picture of Nebuchadnezzar sitting there on all fours, eating poo-poo in the grass. When you see someone telling you you're worthless, you need to see them for the Nebuchadnezzar and the dung and the dirt that they're living out as. And you need to know that you are lifted up by the right hand of Jesus, pulled from the pit, saying you're my precious child. 